Well, when you think of Christmas, I don't know what the first ghost you think about is. Maybe it's the ghost of Christmas past from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But my hope is that you're thinking about the Holy Ghost, and that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about this morning. We are going to be in Luke chapter 1 that was just read, thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, we have been in the Trinitarian Christmas series so far this Christmas season, where we've been considering the role of each of the persons of the Holy Trinity uh, in the birth, in the incarnation of the Son of God who took on flesh. Now, we don't believe in three gods. We don't believe in one God with three modes, uh, but we believe with the historic creed of Nicaea and Athanasius and the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who have one essence and three persons. Now, maybe you struggle to understand the Holy Spirit, and it's not just a Christmas thing. Uh, I remember a, a quote by Dorothy Sayers where she was sharing the story of a new Chinese convert to Christianity who, when he first saw the dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, exclaimed, Honorable Father, very good. Honorable Son, very good. But Honorable Bird, I do not understand it all. And I think sometimes when I hear people talking about the Holy Spirit, just in general, it seems like there is a, a misunderstanding of the nature of the third person of the Trinity. Well, we want to understand the Holy Spirit, who some treat as the shyest member of the Trinity because he's so Christ-centered in his operations, while others treat him like he's the wild child of the Trinity, who's supposed to be against things like order. But this morning, we want to turn to the good Dr. Luke and his gospel in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 40, as we unpack the role of God the Spirit in the incarnation of God the Son. Now, Luke launches his gospel in the first four verses, telling us the purpose that he has written this gospel to others. He says he is doing it to lay out an orderly eyewitness account of the works of Jesus, so that the, the, the friend of God might have a certainty concerning the things they have been taught. Now, why do you think it is that Luke would find it important to highlight that everything that he is writing is actually coming from eyewitnesses. Well, I don't think you have to read far to find out. In fact, in the verses that immediately come after that, you'll notice that he's talking about some things that might seem crazy and that could use an eyewitness to help verify that they are true. Uh, you'll notice that he begins in the very next verses telling the story about an angel, Gabriel, dropping down from heaven to foretell a miraculous birth. Now, you might need an eyewitness to collaborate something like that. Otherwise, people might think that maybe you're crazy or, or maybe you're inebriated. But, but here he says, no, this is an eyewitness account. A, an angel dropped from heaven to tell about a miraculous birth. But catch this, it's not the birth of Jesus. No, the, the first birth we find is spoken of as John the Baptist. So Zechariah is a, a priest. He's married to Elizabeth. They are described as old and righteous. Aunt Liz is barren. Uncle Zeke is a priest. And Gabriel is... is coming before Zechariah, who is terrified when he visits him in the temple. Now, Gabriel said, don't be afraid. You're going to have a son filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 15. And he will walk in the Spirit in the power of Elijah. And then in verses 18 to 20, God strikes Uncle Zeke dumb until John is born because he asks Gabriel, how in the world is this possible? 
So catch this, Elizabeth joins the list of famous barren women from the Old Testament who have miraculous births. You'll remember a number of these stories in the Old Testament. I mean, who can forget Sarah? You remember Sarah and Abraham? Who, when she hears that she is going to have a child at the age of 90, laughs at God. And then we find that she says in her address, you know, how in the world is this possible? How can I have a wife at 90 years old? Or what about the wife of Manoah in Judges 13? Or Ruth? Or Hannah? And here God's about to do it again with Aunt Liz. But John, the miracle of John the Baptist, and what's about to happen, this thing that so shocks Zechariah, it only highlights the utter uniqueness of Jesus that we're reading about this morning. In other words, this is a miracle that is a preamble to the greater miracle that is to come. Now, if you're taking notes, this is the big idea. The unique relationship, the unique relationship of the Holy Spirit to Jesus signals divinity taking on flesh to bring about a new creation. Say that again. The unique relationship of the Holy Spirit to Jesus signals divinity taking on flesh to bring about a new creation. And we're going to see this in a, in a few ways. Uh, first, we see a humble geography meets an exalted geo- genealogy in verses 26 to 27. But before we go there, I, I just want to pray real quick. Will you pray with me to ask God's help? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we come before you, and there have already been many events in the lives of people in our body that have distracted them, that could distract them from hearing from you. Father, it is not a strange thing in the Christmas season for all kinds of relational terrors to hit us. Uh, Father, it is not It is not uncommon for death to hit us or for this to be a time where thoughts of those things can steal and capture our attention away from what we need to be thinking about, which is you, our great God. And so this morning, we ask, Father, that you would help us to hear from you. What we need more than anything is to hear your voice spoken afresh to our hearts. So, Lord, we ask that you would raise the spiritually dead today, that you would transform the hearts of your people, that we might be more like Christ. And it's the great name of that son that we do pray. Amen. Well, notice first, a humble geography meets an exalted genealogy in verses 26 to 27. Now, verse 24, if you read there, you'll notice that it says that it's in the, the five months, it's in the fifth month of when Elizabeth had found out that she was pregnant and is holding it as a secret. And this event that we read about here in verse 26, you'll notice that it happens in the sixth month. And that sixth month is in relation to that fifth month that comes after that fifth month where Elizabeth has been pregnant. That's keen exegesis. Five comes after six. Now Gabriel's back at it this time, visiting a woman who is not barren, but a virgin. You see, the, there's a, an intensification in the plot here. It's not just a barren woman, it's a virgin woman. Now we've seen older women have babies in, in recent days. I remember there was a lot of hubbub about Janet Jackson having a baby at 50 years old, but she delayed on purpose. It's a profound miracle when an angel promises Elizabeth a baby at over 60 years of age as she has longed all of her days for a child. That is an amazing miracle in its own right. But Luke's point is that though there is none greater born of a woman than John, Jesus is categorically greater. Notice Jesus is born in Galilee, And we'll go to Jerusalem later in Luke 2. He is born outside of the city of David, the city of God. 
And here again, we, we see the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ combined. We've seen that throughout this, this vision of lowliness coming together with this vision of exaltedness. And here, Nazareth was a backwater town off the beaten path. It's that city that when Nathanael heard that the Messiah had come from Nazareth, he says in John 1, 46, I'm sorry, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that even a thing? I mean, if I think about Nazareth, I don't associate Nazareth with great education and the best schools. I don't associate it with wealth or power or authority. That, that is where I, I would associate this place with those who are uneducated, who are not connected, who aren't really aware of what's going on in the, the outside world around them. It was not a city that would have been associated with things like God's favor, holiness, a great name, a throne, or power. And yet notice Mary's betrothed to a man named Joseph, who Luke highlights as of the house of David. I'm not sure that Joseph walked around thinking about how he came and hailed from the house of David. He probably would have felt a little bit more condemned and embarrassed about that relationship given where he was living these days. See, David's the Messiah. He is the great king of Israel who is empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and fight for his people and to save them and to protect them from all of their enemies. He was a mighty, glorious king. And Joseph's pedigree matters because it means that the son that he would have would legally be of the house of David. Even if not biologically related to David, he would be legally related to David if adopted by Joseph. Now, just a quick side note. Betrothal here, it, it meant a little more than just putting a ring on it. You know what I'm talking about? It's not our common idea of being engaged to someone where you can end it without a lot of like cost, except maybe dad will shoot you or something, right? I mean, here what we find is something different. It's a concept that might not be familiar with you, but Jewish women were usually betrothed around 13 years of age, and they would go through a, a year-long kind of waiting until they would consummate the marriage in that 14th year. Now, breaking a betrothal actually required divorce, and sex was forbidden during this time. That's why Luke highlights her virginity twice. He's highlighting the fact that they were faithful during this betrothal period. There was no relationship physically between the two. See, faithfulness doesn't create an orb of protection from suffering, but it is often the context of God's blessing even amidst suffering. And here we find Mary, who is going to be swept in, up into some difficult circumstances, but all is a, an example of the favor of God. But don't miss this in this text. Ancestry.com is going to trace both Mary and Joseph's genealogy all the way back to King David. See, Luke makes clear that Jesus had no earthly father by biology. Just below, we'll see that Luke says that David is his father, and he is the son of God. Those are the relationships that are highlighted, his relationship to David and to God. But it doesn't say that he's the son of Joseph or that it, Joseph is his father. See, Joseph would be adopted legally so that we could become adopted spiritually. And that spiritual adoption required Jesus to go from the cradle to the cross and to be raised from the dead and to give us his spirit by which we would receive the spirit of adoption. 
In fact, I love what Romans 8, 15 to 16 says about born-again believers and the relationship that we have to the Spirit of God. He says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We, because of the Spirit of God and our relationship to Him in Christ, we cry out to the Father who is in heaven. He is no longer our enemy, but our dad. See, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think this reality could be the reason that pure and undefiled religion is caring for widows and orphans. It's because if we really have come to know God, then we know what it is to truly be adopted by God. We were his enemies. We were hopeless. We had no future. But in God, we have received an inheritance through Christ so that we do have a future and a hope. And when the Holy Spirit confirms that we know God as Father, it will give us a heart for the fatherless. That's the reality, I believe, of the Spirit of God. That if we know God as Father, that we will have a heart for the fatherless. You know, our staff and elders have been looking forward to clarifying our church's vision in 2020. I kind of like that. Clarifying vision in 2020, you get the 20, anyway. Uh, if you have to explain it, it's not funny. But one of the things that we have been discussing as we've been meeting and praying, is how we, we don't really need as a church to add new things, new things to do. We do a lot of things. And we don't need to add new things to get excited about. See, what we really believe as we pray and we think through your lives and what we see our congregation doing is not that we need to add new stuff, but that we need to highlight the amazing things that God is already doing amongst us. You know, one of the privileges you have as a pastor is actually getting to get an inside view on how God is at work in our body. So one of the things that we're going to be adding in 2020 is this idea of a subplot. We're going to be adding subplots. And we know that the main plot of what we're here to do is to make disciples who make disciples. But we also understand that God is at work as we are growing and as we are gaining a heart for God and his word and his son Jesus. That we want to tell others about Jesus and our people are getting really entrepreneurial about it. And as we do that, we want to highlight ways that God is raising up disciples with a heart to share the gospel in unique ways. So what we're going to do in the new year is actually highlight a subplot. One of the subplots that we want to focus on is our foster care initiatives in the body. And last year, God gave Gia Vincent a heart to launch Impacting Hearts. It's a ministry to young women who are living in foster care group homes, some, some really uh, sweet young women that we're excited that, to be able to be working with. And since then, some of our members, like Francine Jeremillo and Barb Hemd, have begun going each week to these homes to, to love these girls, share the gospel with them, and show them the love of Christ. I get a little teary-eyed, actually, every week when I'm here at Trinity Bible Church, and I get to look out and see some of the faces of these, these young women who are in the congregation, women that we're trying to encourage and point towards Christ and love them. Well, this summer, a, another member got swept up into this, Danica Costner. She got a heart for this ministry, and she scared me to death when she said, I'm quitting my job because I'm going to serve in one of, one of the group homes. I was like, well, wait a minute, you need like, like financial support. She's like, no, God's going to take care of it. I'm like, yeah, but you should wait till he cares, takes care of it and then step into it. And I don't encourage people to quit jobs and like follow in this way, but praise God, he soon after that gave her a job where she's going to be working with Arizona Baptist. 
She's raised up and, and built a home for these girls where girls that are transitioning after foster, out of foster care and have nowhere to go, she's going to be caring for them, sharing the gospel in these homes, leading them towards Christ, pointing them towards Christ. And catch this, God's doing something, and we want to take note of that. We want to take note of what God is doing with this subplot. We're going to give periodic updates of these kinds of things. And strategically, we'll focus things like our harvest offerings towards these kinds of initiatives. Why? Because I believe spiritual adoption changes our hearts and gives us a heart for those who have no families. That's what we want to do. And so those who are longing to be back with their families and adoption, we're going to be focusing on that in 2020. That's kind of exciting, isn't it? Isn't that encouraging to know what your sisters in Christ are already doing? I think we should just give a hand to the Lord for what he's doing right now already. And that's not even something we have to manufacture. That's something that the Lord's doing. But second, notice this in our text this morning. Back to Luke. Jesus is the Messiah that we've been looking for in verses 28 to 33. Jesus is the Messiah that we've been looking for. Now, Mary's been picking out wedding dresses and trying not to be a bridezilla when all of a sudden Gabriel comes and interrupts her wedding plans with a declaration of grace. Now just catch me. Sometimes when you are asking for the grace of the Lord, you are thinking that it is going to come and just fit really nicely into your life and what God's doing. It's going to be super comfortable. But what we find in the the Bible often is when the grace of the Lord shows up, it shakes things up. It comes in ways that you don't anticipate, and a lot of times when the grace of the Lord comes down, it makes you super uncomfortable. Mary's life, it got more awkward after Jesus showed up. Notice what happens. Verse 28 says here, and he came to her, being Gabriel, an angel, and said, greetings, a favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Oh, favored one, this is a message of grace. And she's like, this is wigging me out. I'm not comfortable with this grace. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. For now, notice that God sent the angel Gabriel, same angel that visited Daniel, And gave him a vision in in 8.17, Daniel 8.17, for the end of time. You remember he gave David, I mean Daniel, this eschatological vision of what was coming at the end of days. And that same angel that visited Daniel now is back for Mary, hundreds of years later. And notice what Gabriel has to say this time to Mary. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now that word for favor, it's interesting, same word for grace. And I'm gathering that Gabriel, uh, from this story, uh, did not look as gentle as uh, maybe some of those, I don't know, have you ever seen those precious moments angels with like the, I think it's the the precious moments, it makes little chubby angels with the bellies that poke out that look like kids, you know what I'm talking about? There's like really non-intimidating little creatures, um, 
they were real popular in the 90s. Why are they, this, this angel, why would I say that he's probably not like one of those? Well, because Daniel, Zechariah, and now Mary are all terrified by the sight of him. I mean, it, it reminds me of kind of like a large monster almost coming and saying, it's okay, I'm a good guy, I won't eat you. And yet here, this message that he brings is one of grace. And Gabriel has to tell Mary, don't be afraid. Everybody's always afraid when I show up. Don't be afraid. But what does it mean that she's favored? You know, some people have taken this in different ways. Uh, if you've had any experience in the Catholic Church, as some of you have had, they believe that this favor was because there was really just something about Mary, right? That set her apart from other women. In fact, I was surprised many years ago whenever I saw a church that was called the Church of the Immaculate Conception. And then somebody had to explain to me, oh, like Immaculate Conception, it's not talking about Jesus, it's talking about Mary. They believe Mary was born of a virgin so that she could be prepared to give birth to Jesus. So to them, favored one meant favorite because, uh, favored because she was one of God's favorites because of her uniqueness and her virtues. But catch this. Mary has no resume in this text. We're not led off with this great resume of the reason that God chose her. She simply received God's grace because God is good. Now, maybe there's another reason she's troubled. She can't think of a good reason to get an audience with God. Why would God show up to me? And in verses 31 to 32, I think it actually explains why she is favored. In fact, in the, the word commentary... John Nolan explains that favor doesn't mean that, God, that Mary was God's favorite or special in and of herself. Favor speaks of the magnanimous bestowal of favor from one who is greater to one who is lesser. It is an undeserved gift that is coming to this favored one. It's more like when someone does you a favor, not by virtue of who you are, but by virtue of who they are. See, the favor will be shown in her giving birth to the son God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, God promised David a great son. And here we find, I believe, that Luke is highlighting that, Mary, you are going to see the fulfillment of the son that was promised hundreds of years ago to David. See, that name, Jesus, comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. Name my mom gave me. It means Yahweh saves. John the Baptist prepared people for the Lord. But Jesus' name is the Lord saves. That's his identity. Now, 2 Samuel 7, 9 promised a son to David with a name that he too would be great. Now, Luke 1, also says that he would have the throne of David. He would be the son of the Most High. He would reign over the house. And this would be for eternity. See, 2 Samuel 7 uses all of these same descriptions that Luke does of a coming descendant of David, predicting that he would have David's throne in verse 13, that he would be son of the Most High in verse 14, and reign over their house forever in verse 16. See, Luke wants us to understand that Gabriel says this Messiah that was promised in 2 Samuel 7 has arrived in Luke 1. Now, don't miss this. Jesus, if you're reading your Bibles, this is why he matters. He fulfills the promise made to Eve of a seed who would undo the curse that was brought by the serpent in the Garden of Eden through a greater seed who would crush the head of the serpent. He is that seed. Jesus fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham 
of a kingly seed who would be a king that would bless the nations. Jesus fulfills the promise that God made to David of a son who would come after him but who would be greater than him. He would be the Messiah who would truly fight for God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God's people living under the oppressive rule of Rome might have forgotten God's promises. Joseph, living in a backwater village of Nazareth in Galilee territory, surrounded by people who did not believe in God and Yahweh, would have needed to be reminded that God has not forgotten his promises. He may have forgotten God, but God has not forgotten him. See, God always keeps his promises. God never writes checks with his mouth that his mighty hand does not cash. But catch this. This son of God would have a unique relationship to the Holy Spirit unlike anyone coming before or after him in verses 34 to 40. What Luke wants us to understand is he is greater in his very person than anyone that has preceded him. This would have been strange. It was understood in the ancient Near East that fathers were greater than sons. So how could a son be greater than the father? Now, I know it's really tragic what's happened to Bill Cosby's life and what it is, but I grew up on his show. And there's a phrase that sticks with me from that show all the time. It was a really good line, one that I use all the time in my parenting. It's that I brought you into this world and I can take you out. I've just found that it engenders a loving heart in my kids. But the idea is that the father is greater than the child, right? I brought you into this world. There's a kind of authority that comes with that. I can take you out if I need to. Stop, Stop being stupid. See, that's the modern equivalent of fathers are greater than sons. But Jesus was greater than David because he's fully human, but he's not just fully human. He's not merely human by virtue of a special work of the Holy Spirit. He's fully human, but not merely human. The Holy Spirit is doing a unique work in him. Notice third, the Holy Spirit signals God's unique presence and a new creation in verses 34 to 40. Here we see some of the uniqueness of Christ and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll remember that Luke introduced Mary, repeating that she was a virgin twice. Now, repetition... I always tell you, it it draws attention. Repetition, I I always tell you, it it draws attention. Repetition. I just need to make sure y'all are listening in some way. If you can maybe like grunt or whatever. But you know that repetition draws attention. And so with virgin, it's trying to to acknowledge twice, like, hey, a virgin. She, She has not had any relationships with a man. Mary's virginity creates a significant problem to Mary giving birth to the Christ. How how is she going to do it if she hasn't had relations with a man? That's why perplexed, she asked in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's the modern equivalent of, Gabriel, you do know where babies come from, right? Right? And Gabriel responds in verses 35 to 37, explaining it this way. There he says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
take note, we're, we're talking about the triune God's role in the incarnation. And here we see, notice, the Father, Most High, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're all involved in the birth of Christ. Of course, again, we don't believe in three gods, but one God with three persons. So there really is a sense in which one acts, they all act, all three persons. But what are we to make of the Holy Spirit's role here in the Son of God taking on flesh? It's tempting to see new creation here because of how much it sounds like the, the Spirit's activity in Genesis 1-2. You remember whenever in the beginning of creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the, the waters? That word's not the exact word used there, though the idea might be meant to be included in what Luke presents here. In fact, in Luke 1, you almost get the sense that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the womb of Mary as the new creation is about to, to break out. And this might be right, but we need to pay special attention to the language here to make sure we understand what Luke meant. So I want to focus on the words for to come upon and overshadow here. I believe these words used in verse 35 help us understand what's going on in the picture that Luke wants to draw. First, the Holy Spirit is said will come upon you to Mary. Now, to come upon is only used with the Holy Spirit here and in Acts 1.8 and then in Isaiah 32.15. Only places we find those ideas connected, those words. Now, you'll remember that Luke also wrote Acts 1.8. So two of the, the ways that Luke uses it are, are, are actually together from the same writer at two different points in redemptive history. And the other is coming from Isaiah 32.15. Now commentator John Nolan, looking at this, draws this conclusion. Since Luke nowhere else refers to the coming of the Spirit in these terms, he is probably drawing attention to the Greek text of Isaiah 32.15 in both cases. This is the eschatological coming of the Spirit that will cause the wilderness to become a fruitful field. In other words, the Spirit coming upon Mary to give her a child does signal a new creation breaking out, just as Isaiah declared. See, fruit is coming from the, the barren wilderness when the Spirit comes upon Mary, creating the God-man Jesus. We also, of course, see Elizabeth, the barren woman, giving birth. Life is springing forth at the arrival of this son. Now, overshadowed is important as well. This language for overshadowed is rare. It's used in all three transfiguration accounts where Jesus' glory is revealed to Peter and the others. Now, the same word for overshadow that's used here to describe the Spirit coming over Mary is also used in the Greek version of Exodus 40.35. Exodus 40.35. And there... It says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of God's presence overshadowed it. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. There's a kind of unprecedented display of the glory of God so much that Moses can't draw near. You see it? And here we have an escalation in the birth of Jesus where the greater glory is coming to humanity. See, that overshadowing represented the presence of God. And wherever that cloud went, the people of God followed. Here Luke says this baby is where God's people meet with God. The locus of worship was a place, the temple in Jerusalem. And here the new locus of worship is a person, Jesus. 
See, God's presence is uniquely with him. God's glory is uniquely with this son. Now, some religions speak of God's having babies with wisdom, with women. But there is not a hint of any kind of sex in either coming upon or overshadowing. It is clear this is a miraculous activity of God. This baby would truly be born of the Holy Spirit's miraculous initiative. There's a sense in which God formed Jeremiah in the womb. If you go to Jeremiah 1.5, it says that. And there's a sense in which he too was consecrated for prophetic ministry before he was born. That's what Jeremiah 1.5 says. God had initiative in his life to be used. But Jesus here is utterly unique in his relationship to the Holy Spirit and how he formed and consecrated Jesus from the womb. He was formed in a way that Jeremiah was not. Jeremiah had a daddy on earth. Jesus did not. See, the Holy Spirit formed Jesus in the womb of Mary without any biological father. He consecrated the Jesus who entered the cradle for the purpose of going to the cross to save us from God's just wrath. And he did this for a sinful humanity. See, the first Adam was created from the dust of the earth and led humanity into sin. But the last Adam, Jesus, truly came from heaven by means of the Holy Spirit, creating the God-man who was both fully God and fully man. Don't miss this. The miraculous births of Isaac, Samson, Obed, Samuel, and John the Baptist were only the prelude to the deity taking on human flesh. It was God warming up, the Holy Spirit preparing us for the greater event of Christ coming and taking on flesh. So don't miss the unique greatness of Jesus. All that God is, he is. The eternal Son of God took on flesh. And Jesus' experience of the Holy Spirit was unique and that the Son had eternal communion with the Holy Spirit from eternity's past, not just into eternity's future. And the Spirit points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus. In, in the Word of God, his book that he wrote through men carried along by his power, he wrote a story that highlights it climaxes and culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit writes about. He writes about Jesus. Holy Spirit loves this son. Spirit led many people to write a book focused on him. So Jesus might be called the brother of believers in Hebrews. I think it's good to understand the fact that he was fully human. Absolutely true. But we must never forget that though he was fully human like us, he is also fully God and other than us. See, Jesus came from the Spirit, and he also sent the Spirit. And none of us send the Spirit like Jesus sends the Spirit. None of us are like Jesus in that way. Jesus does that. None of us were born of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was without a physical father. But notice one last phrase that could be seriously misunderstood in verse 37. Gabriel explains, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, that's a place that a lot of churches want to crank up the eye of a tiger in the background, right? Say, okay, guys, nothing is impossible with God. I want you to get your pens out. I want you to start talking about all the dreams, the big dreams that you can sacrifice to God, because he needs to help you think this out. That was sarcastic. But nothing will be impossible for God, right? And you're off writing your Christmas list for God. In fact, this is the kind of like what's going on at Bethel right now. 
Your precious two-year-old girl named Olive died this last week, and the churches have been gathering and worshiping and clapping and singing praises, crying out, come alive, come alive, asking for a resurrection of this little girl. And my heart goes out to these parents. But should we ask for the resurrection of the dead, especially if nothing will be impossible for God? I mean, I think that's a good question. I mean, we have people that we love that die. Should we be praying and and asking for God to raise them from the dead? You know, it's interesting that church history, we don't have orthodox groups that are doing this, and you might ask why. But I, for one, serve a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, just like Paul says in Ephesians 4. I believe in that God. But we need to know the character of the incomprehensible God. If we really begin to wrap our minds around who God is, the fact that he is far beyond our knowing, his ways are unsearchable unless he comes down and shows us, then it means that we need to think carefully about what God has said about how we ought to think about the nature of what we should expect from him. God always keeps his promises. But what are his promises? That's the question. See, we need to know what God has said. Jesus says he'll give us whatever he asks in John 14, 14. But we kind of need to put that in context. Do you remember what he says to Peter in John 13 whenever Peter asked Jesus something? He says, I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? You cannot follow me. And then John 14, I will give you whatever you ask, but I just asked to follow you. You see it? Context matters. And later he gives him the Holy Spirit. and He's allowed to follow him. See, only after Jesus' death and resurrection and only after he breathes the Spirit on Peter in John 20, 22, does John say, you can follow me. And James, what about James and what he says about what we ought to ask of God? He says, you have not because you ask not. You're like, that's what Jesus said. I need to go and ask. But if you keep reading, he also says, and when you ask, oh, I'm asking? You ask wrongly. In what way? Well, you're asking after your sinful passions. You're not asking according to God's will, but you're asking against your own selfish desires. You're not seeking the face of God. You're not seeking to hear from him. You're seeking to tell him what you want rather than speaking back the words of God that have been spoken to you to him in prayer. See, if we want to apply nothing is impossible with God to our daily lives, we need to put that verse in context, right? So I don't think that when God says that, he's saying that we should pray for all things and ask all things of him and anything's on the, on the table. Like, for instance, God, I, I think my wife has found out that I'm cheating on her. Would you please help me cover this up? Because nothing's impossible with God. Well, no, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not good logic because we know that God hates adultery, right? And it's contrary to God's will. So there are at least some things that we should not be asking of God. Well, here Zechariah was stuck, struck dumb Why? In context of Luke, where he says nothing is impossible with God, Zechariah struck dumb. Why? Because he did not believe that God could give his old barren wife a baby. Now here's the irony of that. He's a priest. Hasn't he read his Bible? God's done this stuff in the past. And then Mary has just asked, how will I give birth to Jesus if I'm a a virgin? Did you tell God that part? And Gabe's answer is something we've never seen. The Holy Spirit will do it. Like, how do you have a category for that? Can I really trust that God can do this thing that we've never seen done before? 
You remember when God told 90-year-old Sarah, who was barren, that she would have a child, she laughed at God. And she said, shall I indeed bear a child? To which God replied, what? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything that the Lord says that he can do, that he will do, that he has promised that he will do, that he cannot bring to fulfillment? Anything. And here Gabe says, for nothing is impossible with God to drive Mary to trust God's word that he just gave her. So he's not saying, now go out and make a Christmas list for God with all your selfish desires. Now, back to thinking about, should we pray for resurrections? I don't think it's bad at all to want the dead to be raised. I think we'd all love to raise some people up from the dead. In fact, that's one of the hopes of the gospel, is that one day, not if they will be raised, but that they will be raised. But the reason that Orthodox Christians haven't prayed for resurrection isn't because we don't believe that God is able. Orthodox Christians believe God is able. He's able. The reason is that we look to God who revealed himself in the Bible as to how we pray to him and what we expect of him and what the promises are that have been given to us. And our prayers ought to sound like God's voice. Do you get that? How do we know how to pray? God told us. How do we know who we're praying to? God told us. How do we know the kinds of things that we ought to pray for? God told us. And so when we are speaking back to God, we are speaking with words and language that has been given to us from heaven. So when we pray, we should be praying God's words back to him. Of course, tied to the context of our real lives. And the Bible consistently ties the resurrection to a promise that is on what? The last day. So we've got that promise. They will be raised on that last day when Jesus comes back. Catch this. The first advent is pointing us towards the second advent when Jesus comes back. We need Jesus to come back. Death screams that. Do you hear it? So what is the prayer in the face of death? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Right? And we will be faithful until that day. Help us be faithful. In other words, the question isn't, if we will be raised, but when. So if we want the dead raised, the better prayer is, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And help me be faithful until that day when he shows up so that I will have no reason to be ashamed on account of the gospel, the good news that you have given to us and the son who came and took on flesh. See, that's when the dead are raised. So when we pray, this is how we ought to be thinking about praying. First, we need to understand that, that prayer is contingent on the fact that we too have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to be born in the Virgin Mary. That same Spirit that, was, that came upon her. We we're told in Acts 1.8 is the Spirit that comes upon those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is from that Spirit that we actually receive adoption such that we have a right through Christ, the great Son, to pray to the Father in a way that he will hear us. We are not heard if not for Christ before the Holy God. We are not heard if we are not his children. We are only his children by means of the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So one is we, we need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. Two is we know from John three sixteen that that Holy Spirit comes upon us who believe in Jesus Christ. It is by faith that we are given the gift to be able to be saved from our sins and be born again, as John 3 says. 
The Holy Spirit calls us to be born again so that we can speak to God, so that we want to speak to God, and so that we have language to speak to God. But not only that, we know that it's only in the Holy Spirit that we can even confess who Jesus is as we come before the Father. And so when we, we have those things, we are born-again believers. And if you're not a born-again believer, one great reason to put your faith in Christ, not to be just saved from your sins, that is enough. But also to have an audience with God as your Father, not as your enemy. But there's something else that we see here, and, and there's some realities that we need to hold in our hearts as we come before God and we, we pray to Him. One is, we need to trust. We need to trust that we have a good God, that as we are praying, and we don't know what to ask, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for our groans that we do not know how to pray to God in the way that we ought to. That's what Romans 8 and Galatians 4, 6 says. The Holy Spirit helps translate our prayers into something better than what they are, coming from finite creatures to an infinite God. That's one. Two, we trust in God's absolute ability and sovereignty as we pray. We trust with Ephesians 4 that God is able to do far more abundantly than we can think or imagine. We take that confidence as we go to the, the, the Lord in prayer. Third, we trust that God, that no good thing comes that isn't from God, James 1, 16 to 18. That's our confidence. We know that God is altogether wise in Psalm 104. He is wise beyond us. Now here's why those four realities are so important to us, that, that God is good, that he is sovereign, and that he is wise. It's because when we go to the Lord, we can pray and we can ask for things like a husband, or a better job, or the salvation of a, a child that we love. We can go to him in that. But when we don't get the answers that we want, we are always trusting God that he is sovereign. That this isn't not happening because God is out of control. God's sovereign. We don't think that it didn't happen because God's not good, or that he's holding back good from us, that he doesn't want us to have too much of an experience of good. That's not what God's doing when we pray. We don't believe that when we pray and ask great things of God, that he that our wisdom is above his wisdom, such that we're like, hey God, you know, I've got this great idea that you haven't had yet, and I think if you went and like worked out all the possibility calculations, that you would see my, better, my way is a better way. Anybody ever done that? Anybody have to confess and say, God, you're wiser than I am? I know for a moment I started to think of myself as being like omniscient and omnipotent, all those things, and I know I'm not, I'm finite, I'm sinful, I'm fallen, I'm broken, and thanks for loving me with such mercy, right? Help me to trust that you are wise, that you are powerful, and that you are good, because I'm starting to doubt those things, because I, I'm trusting my eyes more than I'm trusting the God that I cannot see. You see it? We need to trust those things when we go to the Lord in prayer. I mean, I have a lot more, but it's time for us to close, and we've got a baptism. So let me close us in prayer.